The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. And so we come on this second Sunday of Advent. A Sunday when we consider that Christ came into the world, that the second person of the Trinity, uh, that God Himself came and took human form and dwelt among us. And last week we said, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, And that God uh, in His pre-existence came uh, and took on the existence of humanity. And that He related to us. It's an incredible picture of what God has done. That God didn't stand outside of the mess and the calamity that we created and tell us how to fix it. God didn't stand outside and look and say, oh, what a mess that you've made. Work it out. Get yourself out of this. Clean yourself up. And when you've gotten out of this mess, then I'll return into relationship with you. No, God, in all of His infinite wisdom and mercy, entered right into the chaos. He entered right into the mess In a sense, to say, I'm going to redeem this mess. Uh, I'm going to redeem that which has fallen, that which has begun to, as we've used the language, disintegrate. That all of creation we saw last week, all things were perfectly integrated. That man, Adam and Eve, were perfectly integrated with God in the garden. Uh, That there was an intimacy with them vertically. That man was perfectly integrated with himself. Uh, There was a sense of knowledge of knowing self and there was no shame. Uh, There was a knowledge of self without denial. And there was an ability then for Adam and Eve to be together. It said that they stood before one another naked, but there was no shame. There was a beautiful interpersonal relationship. And that all of creation worked with full integration. But then we find and we come this morning and we dramatically want to experience the fact that something cataclysmic took place. That something happened on that day. Something happened in that moment. And all of history has been affected by it. You and me, we are still dealing with the effects of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. It, wasn't, it was a one-time act of theirs that started the process, but we continue to affirm it and to, to realize it every single day and every moment. And so what we're going to look at today is this sense of, in the midst of Advent, in the midst of this second story uh, of cre- creation being lost, what does Christ have to say about it? What does Christ the second Adam, how does His coming into the world in the Advent of the narrative of this birth narrative of this little boy being born to Mary and to Joseph. What does it have to say to answer these great questions? And it's a perfect day for us to come to the Lord's Supper to say there's only one answer to the fall. There's only one way to deal with it, and it is through God's eternal plan and not through our own. And so we're going to look at a couple of things together today. Three things. Uh, in particular. We're going to look at the heart of the problem. What is, what, what is the, the truth, what is the real problem that has taken place, that has happened there uh, in Genesis chapter 3? And then we're going to look at the extent uh, of the problem. How, how far reaching is it? Uh, what does it affect? 
What's really happened? And then finally, we're going to look at the solution to the problem. What has God offered uh, to us to solve uh, the problem that was created within the garden, within the fall? And so the first thing that we see is the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is this. Distrust was introduced into the world. Distrust was entered into the world. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you this? He wasn't necessarily questioning whether God said those words. He was bringing doubt into the question of saying sort of this, really, your parents really told you to be home at 10 o'clock tonight? Not to say that mom and dad didn't tell you to be home at 10 o'clock, but they're basically saying this, how silly of them to say be home at 10 They really couldn't be expecting you to do that. And Satan was coming in, and even in the manner in which this this sentence is structured, it's bringing about this sense of doubt. Where he comes and he says to Eve, with Adam, by the way, right next to her, men don't ever think that we're off the hook. There's a great book, and I'd encourage you to read it, called The Silence of Adam. That Adam stood silent while his wife was tempted, while she misinterpreted what he had taught her because God spoke directly to Adam. Adam was the one who taught Eve, and he did it inappropriately, and he did it poorly, so much so that he stood there next to her, and when he should have had a voice, he stayed silent. And most of men, ever since that day, have lost their voice and have remained silent when they should speak. And Adam, standing quietly by his wife, listened to the serpent say to her, did God really say that? What a silly God. I mean, come on. Nobody would really want to keep this from you. And if He's keeping this tree from you, it means that you can't trust Him. It means that there's something that you could gain that He doesn't want you to gain. Because He's worried. He's afraid that if you eat of this tree... You're not going to die? Interesting, in chapter 2, it says this, when God said to Adam, Adam, in the day that you eat of this tree dying, you will die, die. That's what the Hebrew says. You think God's trying to communicate something? Dying, you will die, die. So what are you trying to say, God? I'm saying that you're going to die. Die, die, if you eat of this. And the serpent comes in and says, he didn't really say that. Or even if he said it, he couldn't have meant it. Because God is trying to keep something from you. And at the heart of the problem ever since is this. We don't trust God. Tim Keller writes in a sermon, here's what he's saying. God, if you obey Him, He will keep you down. God knows that if you do this, And this, you'll broaden your horizons, but he doesn't want you to. What Satan is trying to get into the heart of the human race is this. If you obey God, you'll miss out. If you obey God, you won't be happy. If you obey the will of God, it'll cut you off from all your other options. It will keep you from being all that you want to be. You will never thrive or flourish. Have you heard that lie before in your own life? That internal dialogue that says this. That if you obey God, if you give your life fully to Christ, if you become a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of His, and you begin to live a life that reflects Him and you obey His Word and you do these things, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. 
It's not going to allow you to flourish. It's going to be restrictive. It's going to cause you grief and pain versus flourishing and thriving in life itself. True shalom. And so the evil one from the very get-go attacked there. Interesting what he didn't attack. Notice that he didn't attack the existence of God. He didn't come and say, you believe in the existence of a deity that you can't see? How silly. You believe that all these things were were created? No, it was evolution that did all of this. You came out by cosmic chance that all of these things happened. He doesn't go there. He doesn't attack the existence of God. He doesn't even attack the morality of God's Word or its law. He doesn't say, oh, these laws are wrong. These are terrible laws. Who would have laws uh, like don't murder, don't steal, don't take away? He doesn't attack the very heart of the integrity of who God is in that way about His law or His Word or His existence. He comes at a much more deceptive place and says this, He can't be trusted. He can't be trusted. He's not good. Now we have a deep, fundamental distrust of God. He denies the goodness of God. He denies the goodness and the love and the grace and the goodwill of God that is behind all of these decrees. All of the decrees of creation, all of the decrees of His moral law, all of them say this, obey. Not because of some benefit that you're going to gain from it, but obey because I'm good. Obey because I'm God. Obey because you understand the distinction between the Creator and the creature. Obey this. You see, most of us obey when we do a quick cost-benefit analysis. We will look at any situation and we will run a very fast... It's amazing how the human mind, the supercomputer between our ears works. And it says this. Driving 95 on 95... Benefit, I get to the place quicker. Cost, I'm going to get a ticket. It's going to raise my insurance rates. Mom and dad may get very upset with me. My spouse may get upset with me. Okay, what am I going to do at this point? Okay, I'll obey the speed limit or I'll lower my speed, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it benefits me. Staying married to my spouse and not running after someone else. Cost, can't run after someone else. Got to deal with him. Got to deal with her. That's going to be a cost. Getting a little boring, getting a little bit soft in the middle. Whatever it is, ah, there's a cost to this. It's just not as fun as it used to be. Benefit. And you run a benefit analysis on that. And then you say, for some, the benefit doesn't outweigh the cost. I'm going to, I'm heading out. I'm going. We run these cost-benefit analysis that fast all the time in every decision that we make. And God is saying here, obey me not because it benefits you, obey me because I'm me. And I'm good. And behind every law, and behind everything that I've commanded you to do, behind the don't eat of the tree, isn't something sinister, it's me. And what you need to do is say this, I'm going to obey, not because it necessarily benefits me, but because you're God. And I trust you. And I will do what you've called me to do. And I will live as you've called me to live. And I will pursue the things that you have called me to pursue because and only because you're you. Do you see who that removes from the equation? You and me. Because normally what we say is this. 
I'll obey, I'll do, uh, I'll follow, I won't eat, I will eat, all because of how it works for me. And what God is saying, when did you ever enter into this equation? I'm the one who's most important, I'm the creator. And not only am I the creator, and that alone demands obedience and following and allegiance and servitude and all that, but I'm good. I'm a good leader. I'm a good creator. I want to bless you. I'm giving you Eden. All of it. Just don't eat of that tree. That one tree. Don't eat of it. And Eve and Adam missed it. And we've essentially missed it in our own lives. We come and we realize at the heart of the matter, we ask this question all the time. And you're asking it now at some place and at some level in your life. Is God able to be trusted with my life? Can I trust Him? From our children who are asking that question, to our adolescents, to those who are young singles, to those who are young married, to those who are young parents, to those who are older parents, to those who are children in their homes, to all of us in our widowhood, in our widowerhood, uh, in our singleness, uh, in our families, in our church. God, are you good? Because there is a voice in all of our heads that says this, he's not. And you can't trust him. And behind every act of sin is this. There's a deep and a profound distrust. We've chosen not to trust him. That his way isn't the best way. So that's the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is mistrust. That we've lost a lack of trust and it's inherent within every human being. Now the extent of the problem. How far does this go? Uh, what's the damage? Uh, as we assess the damage after the storm, uh, we look around, we've looked at the building, we've looked inside the building, we've looked at the trees and the campus, we're assessing the damage. How far did it go? How much water it got in? How, how much is there? What's the extent of it? Well, the extent of the problem that we find here in Genesis chapter 3, the problem that Christ came into the world to correct, is that it is absolutely comprehensive. Every facet, every area, every aspect of reality, every aspect of the world, every aspect of life, everything has been impacted and affected by the fall. I learned this simple four way to look at the extent of the fall in this. We are affected in an alienation from God. There is a spiritual alienation. There is an alienation now from self an alienation from others, and an alienation from creation. So we see that in the fall, all of a sudden, there is this sense now in verse 8 that says this, we are alienated from God, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. They heard God, and they hid from God. This Hebrew idiom of walking, it doesn't mean that God actually walked, per se, in the garden of ways, but it said that this walking, there was a deep and a profound and a perfect intimacy. That they walked together. That there was between the Creator and the Creator, the Creator, the creature. There was between Adam and Eve and their Creator a deep, and a perfect intimacy. Nothing in between them. No hiding. 
No hide and seek. No come and catch me if you can. No games at all. And the entrance of sin led Adam and Eve first to an alienation from God. That all of a sudden the vertical reality was broken. That worship, because man was designed to avad and shamar, uh, to worship and to serve, to be in this relationship with God. And now this worship, this relationship with God, now we begin and find ourselves worshiping other things. All of us wrestle with idols. I think it was John Calvin who said the heart is an idol factory. It's producing things for you to worship. For some, it's a relationship. You've got to have this relationship. For others, it's your job. For others, it's wealth. For others, it's something else. that You've got to have it, and you have to have it because that idol, that God is saying this, if you have me, I'll bless you, but if you don't serve me, I'm going to curse you. And so there's this worship that has been messed up, this alienation that has happened with us, and that the first fruit of sin is that we are cut off from God. That we're alienated from Him. The New Testament says that we're at enmity with God. That we're enemies of Him. Foreigners and strangers to this God who we once knew so perfectly and longed to be with so intimately. So there's spiritual alienation. There's also a psychological alienation or a psychological disintegration. Again, that picture of integration, that we were perfectly integrated with God, Adam and Eve perfectly integrated with Him. Now that is becoming, that lack of shalom is pulling that apart. It's disintegrating. And now psychologically with self, there is a disintegration that begins to happen. Look at what it says there. And then the eyes of both were opened and they, they knew that they were naked. Shame. It's just the opposite of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Shame is best understood in this way. David Atkinson puts it, that shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. That sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. Guilt, to be guilty of something or to know that you're guilty of something says this, I did something bad. I did a bad act. I, I did something that was wrong. Shame says this, I am bad. At the very heart of who I am, I am bad. There is an internal voice that says this, I experience now this loss of identity. This shame that enters, this painful self-consciousness that I have. A desperate lack of security in our lives a sense of anxiety and of fear, a feeling that says something like this, I have to do something to cover up my inadequacy that I feel. And for many of you, and for many people, you have worked your entire life to simply try to cover and make up for the deep and profound inadequacies that you know about yourself. That you've made, you made a vow to yourself a long time ago, and maybe it was something like this, I'll never be poor. I will never want for anything because I grew up in an inadequate family and I was an inadequate little boy whose parents didn't have anything and I will never want for anything. I will never be alone. I'm not going to be my parents. I am not going to be, if you are a victim of abuse, 
that you are saying and you're trying to find your voice and you're saying, I am not wrong. I am not the one who is shamed. I am going to have a voice. I am going to live. And you live and you're trying and you're wrestling with this deep and profound sense of shame and everything in your life is driving you towards saying, I'm not. I can't be. I'm not inadequate. And isn't it interesting that one, there are so many benefits to technology. Would you agree with that? But isn't it fascinating that one of the ways that the evil one, this evil one who came and he sowed the seeds of, of this psychological breakdown, this inadequacy and shame, is using technology is in this way of cyberbullying. I read again this week of a beautiful young girl. She was a little overweight. Who's not? Well, a few of you, but most of us. And her friends were relentless. And she knew she was overweight. And she had such a low self-worth. She believed this lie of adequacy. And she had worked so hard to be something and so hard to be something. And her family knew that something was wrong. And they came home and they found her with a gun and they begged her to put the gun down. And right in front of her entire family, she put it to her chest and pulled the trigger. The evil one knows where to attack. And he attacks at your shame. Because he knows that that shame can quickly turn to self-contempt. And self-contempt destroys you. There's a loss of self that happens right here in the garden. Adam and Eve all of a sudden realized they were naked. And God's first question to them was, who told you you were naked? So there's a psychological alienation that happens. There's a social alienation which flows quickly from it. It says the eyes of them both in verse 7 were opened and that they, were na they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There was this social, relational disintegration that took place and all of a sudden there was a barrier between them. They had to hide themselves. They realized, I, I can't be seen. I've got to hide I've got to create fig leaves. I've got to have something cover my shame. I can't do this. I can't be in relationship with you. You can't really know me. I'll let you know enough about me so that I'm at least human to you. I'll let you know enough about me. I will, be, I will look transparent, but I will never be vulnerable. Those are different. Transparency says that I'll let you see a few things. Vulnerability says I'll let you know me. And we live in a world that is terrified of transparency even in marriage, of saying, I want you to fully know me. Part of that shame coming in and where shame comes and disintegrates, it then disintegrates in the lateral. It disintegrates in the horizontal relationship of a breakdown between husband and wife. The very next chapter, do you think there was any relational breakdown between brothers? And then from all of it, just working its way out of all of humanity, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of trying to find and identify ourselves as greater than somebody else, hiding that vulnerability, it breaks down where racism and social classism come into place. It flows out of this. It flows out of this inability to see one another. And there's barriers. And that we still have fig leaves. You realize that, right? You still use fig leaves every single day. Some of them have designer tags in the back. Some of them have four wheels. Some of them have 
a lot of square footage. Some of them come with some letters after your name. Some of them come with several commas within your net worth. But we have fig leaves. We have to cover ourselves. We have to identify. We have to say, this is who I am. I'm an athlete. I, I'm, I'm a brilliant person. I'm a musician. I'm this. I'm that. I've got to cover. I can't let you really see me because if you really see me, if you really know me, you'll reject me. And I can't let that happen. Absolutely will not allow that to happen. So we hide. A great exercise for you to begin today is to start to identify those fig leaves. One commentator wrote this, unless you are resting deep in your soul and the assurance that God absolutely loves you, that he delights in you, unless you know that you're okay and you're in most self, how do you ever move out into relationship? You move out into relationships desperate to prove to yourself and other people that you're lovable. So you don't move out into relationships to serve people. You don't move out into relationships to love people. You go out into relationships, yes, you think you say to love people, but at the end of the day, you're going out into relationships and going out there to use people. You're using other people to make yourself feel better about yourself. You're a philanthropist because you want to feel better about yourself that you give everything away. You're nice to other people, but at the end of the day, you're doing it to gain something back. Such a mix. And it's not across the board. But there is a social alienation. And finally, there's a physical alienation. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded that you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat. He's basically saying this, we are now totally out of accord with creation. That we were called to be stewards of creation. To take care of this beautiful creation uh, that we've been given. And instead, we have been abusers of creation and used it for our own ends and our own means. And it's fascinating to me that the church isn't more concerned about the environment. And just by me saying that, you've already gone to a political place. How sad. We, more than anybody, should be concerned with the beauty of the environment that God has given to us and the creation of it, and that we steward it, and that we care for it, so that through it is seen the glory of God. And that informs your political positions. Your political positions don't inform your spiritual ones. But all of humanity, all of creation is out of sorts. That we're out of accord with creation. And then ultimately and finally, humanity is cast out of the garden. Therefore God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground. And he drove them out and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming, with a flaming sword. Interesting, he says that he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword. Probably he was holding it, but it was there. And what it was doing was keeping there to, from any re-entrance into Eden. And the rest of Scripture is nothing more than a footnote to the story of the fallout of chapter 3 of Genesis in the lives of humanity in our lives. It just explains it. It just proves it. And so now as we begin to turn to a table, we have to ask the question, is there a remedy? Is there some hope? If I just left you there, it would be a pretty bad day, huh? Wow, I was born vile in sin, and oh, I'm just, uh, I already got that. 
Here's the good news. Advent. Here's the good news. Christ came into the world to remedy the problem. But folks, you will never celebrate Christmas as it should be celebrated. You will never be caught up in the spirit of this time if you don't recognize from where we are being brought or the need for Christ to enter in. To say this, I have to have Christmas. I don't celebrate it because it's a social norm. I don't celebrate it because everybody else does. I celebrate it because in it is the witness of the remedy of the problem in which I find myself. That we were lost and desperate, but God, rich in mercy, makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And He says this, I'm going to send the seed of the woman and He is going to crush the head, bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel of Christ, the seed of the woman. Interesting, in the Hebrew it uses the third person singular. He will come into the world. It's the promise of Christ right here in the midst of the problem, in the midst of the disintegration. He says this, but there's a promise coming. And there's one who is coming who in the advent of Christ is going to show you this. You can trust in the promises of God. That if He said that Christ would come, Christ did come. And you can trust Him that He is trustworthy that the failure at one tree becomes a success at another tree. That Adam and Eve failed. The first Adam failed at the first tree. He was in the midst of a beautiful garden with all of creation around, and he failed at that tree. Christ was in another garden. It was dark, and it was temptation, and there was evil. And yet he trusted in the Word of his God, the Word of his Father, and he went to another tree at Galgotha. And he was hung upon that tree. And he passed that test. And he did for us what Adam, the first Adam, couldn't do. And gained for us all that was lost. All that was lost. You see, Christ came not just to save you from your sins. You know that, right? He did come for, nothing, for, more, I mean, for that. But for oh so much more than that. And we sing about it at this time of year, don't we? No more let sin and sorrows grow. What? Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow. Last part. For as the curse is found. He came into the world to reverse the effects of the curse that Adam and Eve ushered in. That He came in His person and He experienced all. That He confronted that angel and that flaming sword. And Robert Murray McShane, if you just want to read great sermons, read McShane. In the 1800s, a Scotsman who died early because he trusted that God said go. And so he left the beauties of the highlands of Scotland to go out and to go into the Middle East. And as he was heading through Spain and going, he died. But he trusted because he didn't do a cost-benefit analysis of it. But he trusted and he said in one of his sermons, he said this, for you to re-enter Eden, you have to step over a bloodied, pierced body. Christ. That it wasn't a Roman sword that pierced Christ in the side, but a cherubim's flaming sword that pierced Him and killed Him and destroyed Him that said this, now, payment has been paid Judgment has been enacted. Perfection has been given. The test has been passed. You get to go back in. That's good news, huh? 
Because you're desperate. Whether you are a believer or not, you are desperate to get back to Eden. And you're doing everything in your power to get there. I want to introduce you to the only way to ever get there. And it's not you and your efforts, but it's Christ and His perfect, completed work on your behalf. I'm terrible at math. I'm really bad at math, especially advanced math. You put a couple of letters and some numbers a little on top of numbers, and I get really lost. And I could try to take it, and I had tutors since the time I was 12 years old, and I've failed more classes than I think I can remember, and I've worked my way to where a D was a happy day for me in college in some of my advanced math classes because I realized I just can't do math, and I'm so tired of trying to do math that it wore me out. Some of you are so tired of trying to get back into Eden. You're terrible at it. You're not good enough. And you know it. And maybe today is the first time that you will finally bend a knee and you'll say to Christ, you do it for me. You do it for me. Because I can't. That's why He came into this world. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that You finally... that You gave a final blow to the enemy. That You've given us entrance back into a garden that we so desperately want to go to. That that song of Eden and the beauty of Eden is that poem, is that music that we were born remembering. And we know it's there. And we so desperately want to get there. But we're afraid that maybe we'll be rejected. We're afraid that our shame and our guilt and all that we've done will keep us out, that we're tired of trying and failing, so we've just given up hope. God, thank You for this table that represents the beauty of Christ who says, Come unto Me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So we come seeking rest today. In Christ's name, Amen.